How's everyone doing today? Good? All right. Let, let me uh, pray one more time for us, and uh, we shall begin, okay? Let's pray together. Father, Lord, we thank you for this beautiful day that you've made, Lord. Thank you for the changing of the seasons. We thank you for the fact that that reminds us of your promises, Lord, that seed time and harvest and the seasons will not fail until all of your purpose is accomplished, and we thank you for that uh, as a display, as a manifestation of your covenant faithfulness to the earth. And Father, we just pray that you would use that to remind us that you are faithful to us, Lord, to the very end. And so, Father, we pray you'd be with us now and that you would uh, encourage our hearts and sanctify us as we contemplate our union with Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Okay, well, the book of Ephesians. Woo! We are finally going to look at the book of Ephesians. Sorry for the, well, I'm not sorry, but that was a lengthy introduction to practical theology. We're still... We're still kind of doing an introduction to practical theology, but um, I did want to begin today by talking about uh, some foundational issues of practical theology, because remember, remember how Ephesians is broken up, right? Ephesians is broken up into two parts. Chapters 1 through 3 really define for us the nature of our union with Christ, Whereas chapters four to six is kind of a, it's kind of an outworking of that union. It's, we, we get to see that union in action in the practical sections there of Ephesians. But of course, we have to begin, um, with the reality. Remember, as we talked about before, how the indicative leads to the imperative. Um, that's very important in the book of Ephesians. And so what I want to do is have you all read uh, some scripture for me, okay? And and this is this is what we'll do. Um, let me just write down, because these are kind of foundational ideas here. But in terms of our union with Christ, we're going to read chapters 1, 3 through uh, 6. And then in terms of our covenant participation, we're looking at chapter 2, verses 11 through 12 and in terms of the mystery the musterion and so this is the english transliteration of this greek word i just put it up there for show and tell and uh, when they transliterate the greek the u is always represented with a y don't ask me why they do that they're just making things even more hard more difficult on us right but musterion is that all-important term in the book of ephesians mystery it's a very crucial term in the book of Ephesians. And so that will be chapter 3, uh, verse 9 through 11. So let's begin with some scripture reading. Chris, you want to read for us uh, chap- the first one? And uh, Wally, you want to read the second one? Huh? Yeah, yeah, the first one. Yeah, 1 through 6. That's a 6, not a G. There's no verse G. So that's a, that's a 6, okay? Christian, you want to read for us uh, chapter 3, verses 9 through 11? Okay? Because these are, what I'm saying is that what is the indicative, right, of the letter? And I've broken it down to these central concerns. It's not that outside of these verses, there aren't other concerns dealing with the indicative of the letter. What I'm saying is, in some in some form or fashion, everything hangs on these. So uh, these are really foundational 
to how the Apostle Paul gets to chapter 4 when he's basically going to say, and now in light of these things, this is how you live, right? So, okay, let's start with the, with the first one. Go ahead. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the love. Mm. That's right. Okay, the second one. Let's all turn there. Chapter 2, verse 11 through 12. Remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. And so if you're wondering what that has to do with covenant participation is that it's kind of the opposite of that. Now union with Christ assures us of what? Of the fact that we are no longer strangers to the covenants. That's the implication. Okay, last verse. Everybody go to chapter 3, beginning in verse 8, Chris, all the way to the end there. Amen. And then he talks about how this is what we boldly proclaim. Um, and that's right. That, that, that's exactly right. So now, now that we see kind of the, these foundational pillar texts, let's go back now quickly to, ch- to the, the first one, which is these verses here, but really in consideration of the whole thing, let's go back to chapter one and look a little bit closer at this whole concept right here. Is everybody cold or hot in here? Neutral? Man, I'm hot. Is it the sweater? Okay. Yeah, yes, 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 yes. People are like wearing blankets in here. Huh? <laughs> Preacher's on fire, right? <laughs> no. Um, okay, let's go back over this because this is really just, uh, this is really tremendous here, um, the theology that's being presented to us here. If you look at, you know, a lot of people go to uh, chapter 1, verses 3 to 6, to really uh, focus in on what? What do people go there to focus in on? Predestination, Predestination, spiritual blessings, election, right? Which are precious uh, truths, no, no question about it. I mean, this is precious doctrine. But really, what if I told you that the crucial, the most crucial part of this passage is this little term, in Christ, Right. That phrase right there in Christ or what's another way of saying that even shorter in him. Um, as John Murray, who wrote the book Redemption, Accomplished and Applied, has said in, in that book, the doctrine of union with Christ is the most important doctrine uh, in the entire Bible 
dealing with, especially with soteriology. Um, that is because, as the, as the text says here, right, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places happens where? In Christ. Now, what does it mean to be in Christ? Uh, that's, that's a big one. I mean, you guys know what it, what it means, right? But, but, um, there, I would say there's two, there's two aspects to this. There's two aspects. This, there's what I would say is, and now this is, just kind of bear with me here, conceptual and actual, right? Or we could even say realized, right? Because we're talking about a certain thing. Uh, and the reason why, of course, is because conceptual is dealing with what? As it says, we were chosen in Christ. How we were chosen in Christ? We were, we were chosen in Him when? Before the foundation of the world. So before we were even a thought, before we ever came about, before we were ever born, before the world was even born. What is this text saying? We were already in Him. What does that mean? What does that mean? Russell and Andy? We were already chosen. Okay. Anything else? Anybody else? The covenant love of God was already placed upon us uh, to come about in a specific time in history. Yeah, I like that. I like that because it's, it stresses kind of the nature of it, right? It's not just the fact of it, but what's the nature of this union? And you said, well, it's the covenant love of God, right? And I, I, I think that's, I think that's right, especially if you correlate uh, this whole concept of being chosen in union with Christ. Let me just write down a, uh, a verse that maybe goes along with this. That would be Romans chapter 8, uh, verse 29, where the Apostle Paul talks about whom he foreknew, right? What does it mean to be foreknown, right? Well, Arminianism would say, um, Arminianism would say to be foreknown, prognosis, just simply means God knows about you ahead of time, right? What's the problem with that? What's the problem with if if that verse is saying those who he knew ahead of time, he also called, right? What's... Hitler? Anybody else? So kind of a basic question here. Is there anyone in the whole world that has ever existed or will ever exist that God doesn't know about ahead of time? <laughs> right? <laughs> I don't know, but he knows everything that way, right? <laughs> it's just like he knows the devil in that way, right? He already knew about him, right? So it can't possibly just simply mean that he knows about you ahead of time. That is not, that is certainly not what it means. I, I think what it means is what Robert said is that God chose to set his love upon you. Uh, and that, that, those kinds of ideas are borne out in the Hebrew derivatives of the Old Testament, where the, where the Greek word comes from. Uh, the Hebrew word yada, I think is crucial. Yes. So if I'm right, hmm? if I remember right, they don't just say knows about you, it's what he knows about you in that you would choose him or. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, he knows something about you. He knows that he will choose. So let's flesh it out, right? You're talking about Arminianism, right? The whole theology, if you flesh it out, what they're saying is God knows something about you, i.e. that you will choose him. And on the basis of that, God then chooses you. You see what I'm saying? So it makes God kind of react. In that sense, he doesn't say that he, well, they don't say that he 
Uh-huh. Not everybody would choose God. Not everybody would choose. Sure. And it makes the choice contingent upon man. Right. Yes, ma'am. It's a good question. Right. Right. Sure. Good question. Yes. Yeah, so the the Greek word prognosis, right? As many grammars have pointed out, it actually comes from a Hebrew use of the Hebrew word yada. Now, that's not Hebrew, but that's just so you know how to spell it or you know how to pronounce it, right? And yada is used in in various ways. It can mean simple knowledge, but here it probably means something like what you find in Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 5, where God says of Jeremiah, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you, and I ordained you to be a prophet, right? So what does it mean there that even before the womb, God knew Jeremiah? And so... Theologians conclude that God had already determined to set his love upon Jeremiah, um, so much so that he would use him as a prophet. The same term that's used in the intimacy of marriage, that Adam knew his wife and they had conceived, right? So it definitely has the capacity of speaking of that intimate uh, love. And so theologians distill it all down and say that is referring to the covenant love of God that has been set upon a person in a predeterminate fashion. Because that's the context of Romans chapter eight, verse twenty-nine, and that's the context of, you know, um, oh, that's that's kind of the theology that you get. Okay, so yes, sir. So basically, uh, you're just talking about those who have come to Christ. I, I know, I knew your frame. I know the numbers of hair on your head. I know you. Mm-hmm. It's not talking about that he knows things about you. It's 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 more of a determinative love is that he determined to set his love on you. So it's a choice. That's why it's that's why it's put together with the doctrine of election, right? It's interesting, right? Because this whole concept of God knowing us is coupled with the idea of election and predestination. Why? Because what's happening in election and predestination is God is setting determining to set his love upon us. So that's what's happening. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, it's the greatest love of all. I mean, God set His love upon us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right, and that's what the marriage relationship reveals, right? It's kind of that intimate love between Christ and the church. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, obviously, that's what we mean by conceptual. Conceptual really speaks of what theologians are talking about here is the idea of in eternity. In eternity, um, because of God's decrees, right? His, our union with with Christ has already been conceived. So Wayne Grudem says, God thought of us in relationship to His Son from eternity past. If you can even talk that way, <laughs> which is kind of hard for us to grapple with that, right? But the Bible talks that way. I mean, the Bible talks about eternity and time, just to help us to understand. You know, I think the mind of God, they're condescending so that we can kind of understand on human terms what is meant by all of that, right? So, but, but what about actual or realized union with Christ? When does that happen? In time, at conversion, right? By faith, 
right? When we're justified, at that moment, a person is converted and is actually really united to Christ in a mystical, spiritual fashion, right? Uh, because even though God elects us in this conceptual fashion, um, we don't ever want to slip into some errors theologically dealing with eternal union with Christ, right? We don't want to slip into the hyper-Calvinistic error known as eternal justification, right? That from all eternity we have already been justified, right? So that we are never actually in a hostile relationship to God. We're never God's enemies. We're never children of wrath, like the Bible says, right? So uh, a justification is not an eternal position that we ever held, right? Justification only happens in real time and space, things like that. And then I would say, oh, what's the other one I'm thinking of? Um, there's that one. There's eternal justification. What were we talking about? A conceptual union. Um, I don't know. Let's see if it comes back to me or not. But actual realized union happens at conversion. That's very important. And oh, I don't know why I can't. You, you were speaking about, about don't get into the error of a conceptual understanding of these things. Oh, pre-existence, I'm sorry, yeah, it's a simple one, right? Is that we did not pre-exist, right? Or, or what is known as the pre-existence of the soul. That we actually eternally before God, our soul pre-existed, and that's how he knew us. That's a Mormon doctrine, that's right. So anyway, just, I just thought of those, so I thought those are, those are important so that we don't have in our mind as if in eternity, there we are, our soul is there before God, no. Right? That would make us eternal, and those are you know, those are uh, attributes that we don't possess. Make sense? Any questions, comments, statements, right? Very straightforward, right? I mean, but look how glorious this is. It says every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. So, so, so for us, it's important to note that nothing good ever comes to us from God apart from Jesus Christ. It is only be, because of our union with Christ that this happens. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. I mean, that's such a tough... I mean, I don't know about you guys, but I mean, when I first encountered the sovereignty of God, I mean, that was a life-changing moment for me, right? I mean, that kind of shattered all my humanistic dreams, that it was all about me. You know what I mean? As I realized, like, right? Like, I just realized, like, it's not about me. You know, God is sovereign. God, you know, already ordained my union with Christ. You know, I mean, this is remarkable. And so you kind of struggle with all of those notions. I mean, how many of you got uh, an email this week by Brady that left our church? Anybody? Just kind of elephant in the room. I know some of you got it. But in, in there, you know, he, um, this brother complained that, you know, Calvinism is, and that was really unfortunate. I just bring it up, not not because I want to, you know, speak evil of anybody, but, but just because maybe to correct, you know, this idea, you know what I mean, that, that of the sovereignty of God and where it should lead us. I mean, just look at Paul's thinking. So this is when, when I was studying the sovereignty of God and I was concluding with, you know, how's that fair? What about me? You know, theodicy, you know, God and evil and all of those things. Uh, and then I had pastors who were telling me, get away from that. That's evil. <laughs> you know, that's a different God. You know, uh, that's just going to mess people up. Um, it's just going to trip people up. It's just going to 
cause them to stumble. How many, anybody told you that when you were studying Calvinism? It's just going to cause people to stumble, get away from it type of thing. And I thought, wait a minute, because I was studying this once and I thought, but that's the complete opposite of where Paul goes. If you look at the text, where does he go? Right after he says in verse 5, in love he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. Now watch this, according to the kind intention of his will. And what is it for? Verse 6, this is the purpose, to the praise of the glory of his grace. And I thought, well, the things that people are telling me, not concluding with praise. We're concluding with questioning God. We're concluding with, you know, making up, you know, theories about how this works out to our, you know, so that we're kind of equal with God, you know, free will and how all that works out. Did you guys get kind of the same experience? A lot of people in here? Yes? No? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, that's why it's like it I would say that unless unless predestination and election and the sovereignty of God, unless these things lead us to worship, we did something wrong in the process. That's what I would say. What's that? Yeah, it's got to increase our doxology, you know what I mean? It has to lead to worship. If it doesn't leave you standing in awe of God, yes, these are difficult concepts to grasp philosophically. They're challenging. I would say from a human perspective, because we're sinners, it runs contrary to everything that's innate in us. I mean, this is this is as abhorrent to the natural man as, as anything, right? You go around talking to the natural man about election. I mean, I'm at UNT all the time, and students, you know, they know I'm a Calvinist, and they'll even, you know, they'll do... You know, they take a lot of them take shots at me while I'm up there, and they just kind of walk by. And some of them will even walk by and say, "He's a Calvinist," <laughs> you know. They just that's all they'll say, and they just walk by, you know. And and I'm like, yeah, yeah, I am, you know. And and a lot of times they'll bring that up as a as a form of accusation to say, "Oh, you believe that you know God is only choosing some people," you know. And it's just like, yeah, I kind of have to. <laughs> <laughs> if I want to follow the Bible, you know, <laughs> surprise, surprise, you know. Exactly. Yeah. And if we know our own wicked hearts, as Jeremiah seventeen nine says, right, deceitfully wicked above all things, why in the world would God choose me? That should be the, that should be the proper response of the creature. Right. Yeah, I would really encourage you guys, if you have not already, um, listen to John Piper's sermons on Romans 9. If you, if you want a really excellent exposition on this issue, it was Piper's sermons. I think he's got like 10 sermons just on Romans 9. It was his sermons on Romans 9 that really, really, really did it for me. I mean, when I really heard him expo, I mean, my face, I remember one sermon, my face was quivering. I was listening so intently. I was just like, you know, because this is back in the day when I was really trying to get my mind around Calvinism and the doctrines of grace in this. And I was like, oh, I can't believe somebody. Because, you know, in my church, it's like forbidden to talk about this. And here's John Piper just going off. <laughs> and I was like, you can't do that. <laughs> we, used to have a, we used to have a running joke at Calvary Chapel. You have to hide your, uh, you have to hide your Piper books. You know, you can't let the pastor know you're reading John Piper. I mean, it's incredible. You know what I mean? It's really crazy. Anybody resonate with that? Yeah. Right? You gotta hide your Puritan books, your Spurgeon, your Calvin, you know? <laughs> yeah. 
I know. I almost want to say a joke about I won't. I will, I'll keep it on a Sunday school level. Hmm. <laughs> uh, the other thing that you see here in terms of union with Christ, what else do we see? Uh, just to point out the obvious, right, is that it is a Trinitarian union, right? This is the work of the Trinity, right, that puts us in union with Christ. As many people have pointed out, verses uh, uh, 3 to 6, right, what is that? That is really to stress a person of the Godhead. That is the Father choosing. Verses 7 through 12 is the redemption of the Son, and verses 13 through 14 is the sealing work of the Spirit. So what what are you getting? And at each one of these intervals, you get the statement to the praise of his of the glory of his grace or something like that, right? It, it actually I've studied this before. It actually intensifies every time. Um, you see what happens here. Look at verse. Follow with me, verse six. Right, he says, to the praise of the glory of his grace. Now look at verse 12. Uh, to the praise of his glory, verse, uh, 14. To the praise of his glory. So it ultimately just goes to the praise of his glory. So after each person's work, you have doxology, right? The Father does what he does, praise. The Son does what he does, praise. The Spirit does what he does, praise. That's incredible. You know, so that what happens in our union with Christ is that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all united and in perfect harmony as to who is in union with Christ. Right? So God, what I would say is that God is, God is united both on the objects and the means of redemption. Right? Who are the objects? Those who are chosen. And they are all in union with that choice. What are the, what is the means? Christ what? (laughs) Right? Christ dying? Right? What's that? For what? That's right, for us. So the means of redemption is the cross. Right? So the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are all united on who is redeemed and how they are redeemed. It's perfect unity. You can't, you cannot accept this concept that the Father chose some, but then the Son attempts to redeem people that the the Father did not choose. Does that make sense? Right? what would that lead to? What what doctrine does that affect? The Trinity, which is what doctrine? Part of what doctrine? Theology proper, which is which is the fancy way of saying the doctrine of God. That's right. It affects the Godhead. It affects the very center of everything. Uh, this is why we have to get this theology right. Right? None of this sloppy agape. <laughs> We've got to get redemption. <laughs> this is not dip and chip Christianity, you know. We have to get these the- this theology right. We can't get sloppy with it. You see what I'm saying? Because it has massive ramifications for the most important doctrines of all, like the doctrine of God. 
You know, if we if we think that God chooses some, but the son dies for everybody. Then what does that say about the internal working of the Trinity? That's monstrosity. You have like the son pitted against the father. (laughs) You can't have that. Right, Marianne? Marianne is over there shaking her head with great disdain. I was just hoping she's agreeing with me, not. Okay. <laughs> mm-hmm. Okay, so, <clears throat> boy, we have so much here. Um, all right, let's talk about the next one. Um, not just because I've got two points here. Notice, union in this passage, in this first passage, which really stretches, as you know now, all the way down to verse 14, right? Um, but then, when we get to this section, the section past that, uh, what we're saying is that union is not just taught, but it's also treasured. Uh, that's what I attempted to do. This marker works really great, but I'm losing the little marker, the tip, which I hate to lose. It's such a great marker, but oh well. Let's look at verse 15, right? Ephesians chapter 1, verse 15, because we go beyond simply teaching us the union that we have with Christ to now what we can call something like treasuring, treasuring the union that we have with Christ. Look at verse 15. For this reason too, I heard of the faith, I've heard of the faith of the Lord Jesus which exists among you and your love for all the saints. Do not cease to give thanks for you while making mention of you in our prayers. That the, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, that's such a glorious thing there. Um, he says, may give to you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling with the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. And what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe? These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might which he brought about, watch this now, in Christ. You see that? In Christ. That's the really operative word, in Christ, right? He says, when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he puts all things and he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. Um, several things are happening here. Um, and there's really three, three things that the author wants us to get from the work of Christ, right? Number one, it says here, let's see here. The first thing that he wants us to get is he wants us to get the knowledge of his will. Look at verse 17 again. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Now, what is that? What is that referring to when he talks about the knowledge of him or when he talks about a spirit of wisdom and revelation? Well, first of all, we have a, we have a decision to make. Um, is it spirit or, oh boy, I capitalize everything, so this is like a contradiction here, but, um, is it lowercase s or uppercase s in that phrase there where he says, 
that he would give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him. That's a big decision there. Big textual decision. What's that? Uppercase. Uppercase. It's a big, big, uh, big case to be made for that. You know what I mean? That what he's talking about there is the Holy Spirit. Lowercase. Lower Who said lower? <laughs> All the lowers say I. <laughs> All the uppers say I. <laughs> you know what's crazy about that, Mike? Hey, listen, don't feel bad, brother. Uh, Peter O'Brien, who I think wrote one of the finest commentaries on Ephesians, is with you, brother. He sees that as an uppercase reference to the Holy Spirit, who is the spirit of wisdom and of revelation. And he cites all these Old Testament texts to show how the spirit and wisdom go together and all of this. Do I think he's right? I don't know. It's a hard decision. Um I'm inclined to say no, but yeah. Yes, sir. I'm not just trying to win the popular vote either. I'm just, I, I really think it's a lowercase s there. Right? Mm-hmm. For sure. There's, there's no question, there's no question that the spirit is the spirit, the, sp- uh, the spirit of God teaches right he he is the wisdom the, the the spirit of wisdom um for sure um, but what is meant here by spirit of wisdom and of revelation so once we determine what this is let's say if it says spirit of wisdom and revelation lowercase s what is that referring to it's talking about our spirits our souls A spiritual gift, certainly possible. Having the mind of Christ. Having the mind of Christ. So spirit there refers to having a mind of Christ. Um, so, so, so in the Bible, when it's a lowercase spirit, what else can it, what's that? Attitude. Disposition. Yeah. I, I think that's the majority of, that is the majority of, of the commentators where they're at is it, those that don't take the uppercase S as a reference to the Holy Spirit when it's talking about lowercase S. What they're referring to not is the spirit of man. It's not his soul, but it's something like um, a disposition, an attitude, maybe even a spiritual gift. I mean, Paul was a charismatic through and through. He lived in the right time for that. But anyway, it's just good. A sanctified mind. There you go. Yeah. See, it's a good thing we got Johnny Mac in here because, hey, you can. <laughs> so, so if he says sanctified mind, then, then John MacArthur is saying that this is referring to a disposition, an attitude, a mind set, right? That, that, that type of thing. So then the next question is this. What is the wisdom talking about and what is the revelation? You're not off the hook just because you determined it's a lowercase s and it's talking about a disposition or an attitude. What does wisdom and revelation refer to? Because if you walk around the church right now and say, hey, brother, I have the spirit of revelation. Yeah. <laughs> Some people might look at you sideways, right? So we don't go around telling people, hey, I got the spirit of you know, revelation. Come talk to me after after church. I'll tell you what's really going on. Right? <laughs> yes, sir.
Interesting. I wonder who wrote that. That's your ESV study Bible? Yeah. Go to the very beginning of your introduction of, of Ephesians there. I want to see who actually, who, who, who wrote that section in the ESV study Bible. I wonder what scholar that is. Maybe it's, um, Arthur Jet, or Arnold? Clinton Arnold? Clinton Arnold's a good, good one. He's a kind of a, the, the Ephesians guy. Clinton Arnold. He's a professor at uh, Talbot University, Clinton Arnold at Biola, and he, he is kind of known as the Ephesians scholar. You know, he's done so much work on Ephesians. Does it say at the very, very, very beginning of that introduction? Uh, anybody else have an ESV study Bible? Let me know if you find out. Or you can go to the very beginning of the table of contents. Yeah. Contents. It has the contributors of who wrote what. I'd be Yes, sir? Okay, keep going. Yeah, yeah. What's the explanation? Yep. Yeah, and also, like, look at this, right? So, like, if you take... When it says they may give you a spirit, let's say you take the Holy Spirit position there, of the wisdom and revelation of the knowledge of Him. So now you got a decision to make. What's the antecedent to Him? Because if you take it as a lowercase s, then that's referring back to the Father. You see that? But if you say it's an uppercase s, it could be referring to the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, as the last person referred to. Um the knowledge of him. So I think it's, I think it's referring to the Father because of the wisdom literature or the wisdom passages in the Old Testament. When, when a spirit of wisdom is given, the spirit as above everything, uh, given this wisdom that it's talking about is of God's will in reference to God's will. So God has given us a spirit of wisdom and revelation in order to know God's will. And, 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 but it's not general. It's not just general in the sense of, you know, people, Christians asking, you know, what is God's will for my life? That's not what he's talking about here. When he's talking about here, the will of God, it's specifically in the context of this revelation. And what is this revelation? I think it is what has been revealed in and through Christ. So he says, I hope that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. See, 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 see that language of enlightenment, I think, should go with the wisdom and the revelation, like Pastor Chris is saying, like an explanation to it. So what is it that he wants us to be enlightened about? Several things. Number one, so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, right? What is that referring to, the hope of his calling? What is calling? What is the calling here he's referring to? The redemption call. The redemption call? Okay. That's right. The internal call. That's right. So it's salvific, right? It's not just simply some external call. It's a, it's a, it's a redeeming call. It's an electing call. It's a saving call. Yeah, it's salvation that we have been called to. And what he's saying is that what is the hope that we have? So think about this, right? What are, what are we doing here? We're laying some some doctrinal 
Oh, we're laying some doctrinal foundations for practical theology. Now, you guys tell me, practically, how does having your eyes enlightened to the hope of your calling, how does that practically help you? Or how should it help you, practically speaking? Amen. Yeah, amen. Amen. Amen, brother. I like the hardcore spirit. You have a spirit of hardcoreness. Right? <laughs> Brian? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Amen. What is uh, what is he? Um, what does Paul call it in the Philippians? The upward call, right, of Christ Jesus. Yes, sir. Amen, brother. Yeah, and I think about and think about your circumstances too, right? Like if we think about our circumstances practically. I mean, we live in a, we live in an age where our hope is quickly depleted based on our circumstances, right? Something goes wrong at work, right? Somebody gives you a bad look. So a bad word is said about you. You know, you lose your job. You lose your health. Whatever it is, your hope can wane. But what this is saying is that Paul is saying, I, I hope and my, my prayer is this, that the eyes of your heart, listen to that language. Don't miss that language. The eyes of your Heart, which is just basically saying that with the eye of faith, you are able to trust and to believe and to and to see how glorious these things are. What things? The hope of your calling, number one, right? That you have a hope that transcends everything else that might happen to you in this life. That's incredibly empowering for Christians that are going through it. You know, yes, Mike. Oh, S. M. Bach. Okay, yeah, it's a good trend. He's a yeah, it's a good commentator. Yeah, yeah, he's a good commentator. It's good. I thought it was maybe Clinton Arnold. <laughs> I just read an article that California San Andreas fault that they're afraid the whole thing. Now the seismologists are saying the entire thing could shift at once. Get out. <laughs> Get out. They'll have their exit before they want it. Yeah, they want to succeed, right? Hey, real quick, we got got a little bit of time here. Turn with me real quick to Ephesians chapter 4, just to maybe see in the text, how does Paul go from the indicative to the imperative in terms of the hope of calling? Because what I would say is the call should lead to Unity. The hope. The hope of the call should lead to unity. Ephesians chapter 4, verse... What did I say? Verse 4. See that? Which is this section we're going to cover. But it says, There is one body, one spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling. Same phrase. 
So how does Paul use it practically in the church? To produce unity. We all have the same hope of our calling. Right? Hey man, doesn't matter how bad it's getting, you and I have the same hope, brother. Keep looking up. Right? The church should be unified because we have the same eschatological hope. Um, what is another thing that he tells us to have our eyes enlightened to? Look at, look at, look at, uh, it's just almost, this is just not fair. There's no way to cover this. He says, the hope of your calling, and here's another one, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? Now, what is that talking about? So, inheritance, right? Um, is that referring to our inheritance, what we will inherit? What is that talking about, Landon? What God will inherit. Now that is incredible, but it's true. This is not referring to our inheritance, but this is referring to what God inherits, which is His saints. That's remarkable, right? Where does this language come from? Is Paul just inventing it here? God inherits His saints? What's the background of this? That's right. He will have a people for his own possession. All those passages like that in the Old Testament, this is where this language comes from, right? That we are meant to be a peculiar people for God so that we would... Now, so so in terms of being an inherited people for God, what that should produce, unity is one. Watch this. Turn to Colossians, please. Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1 verse 12. Give thanks to God the, to the Father, watch this, who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. And so the concept of his inheritance and our inheritance overlaps. But what I'm saying is this heritage is one of light. The principle is holiness, purity. Now, Turn to Ephesians chapter 5 very quickly as we kind of, we come to the end of it here. We have one more, maybe one more. Um, Ephesians chapter 5 verses 6 through 10. Landon, you want to read that for us, brother? Therefore, do not be partakers with them. For you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth, trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. Mm, that's right. That's right. Um, and last one. Last one because we're going to run out of time here. Ephesians chapter 6. 10 through 12 at least is that because if you if you look at Ephesians chapter 1 the next thing he says is not only the inheritance of the saints but what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward you who believe and what is the concept there it should lead us to power and vindication and, and even more than that let me just summarize it Warfare. What do I mean by that? 
spiritual warfare, right? Why is that? Let's keep reading in verse chapter 1 real quick. Verse 20, right? These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, might, verse 20, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Here it is, verse 21. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. Every name that's named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. Verse 22, you guys know this very well because we quoted this over and over and over and over in Hebrews. And he put all things in subjection, watch this, under his feet. You guys remember what psalm in the Old Testament this goes back to? 110, the most quoted psalm in the New Testament, Psalm 110, right? Matter of fact, the most quoted scripture of the Old Testament. The New Testament doesn't quote any scripture more than Psalm 110. That's remarkable. That's remarkable, right? So we should know Psalm 10. We should memorize Psalm 10. Don't test me if I remember it. Don't, don't give me a, don't, don't quiz me because I haven't, but you know what I'm saying. Um, yeah, so, what this tells us is that he has authority over all things. Look at chapter 6, verse 10, and we'll end right here. Finally, be strong in the Lord in the strength of his might. Now, we understand now the strength of his might. What is the strength of his might? The strength of his might is that Christ is the exalted one. He is the one at the right hand of the Father, far above all rule and authority. So do you think we, through our union with Christ, do you think we have power? We have access to power? You better believe it. We have access to spiritual strength. We have access to the armor of God so that we can quench the fiery darts of the devil. That's what it's all rooted in. And practically speaking, that's how we are to combat our warfare. Because of that, just another example of how the indicative leads to the imperative. The indicative is this, Christ has been exalted to the right hand of God. The imperative is this, put on the full armor of God. Because he's given us access to this power. Just remarkable. Oh, we n- Next week, Lord willing, or we'll see. We'll see when I get back in here. But uh, you know, I am having a baby, you know, I mean... It's, Kind of a big deal, you know. <laughs> you parents in here are like, yeah, you wait. Kind of a big deal. We're going to look at covenant participation and then we'll get to mystery, mysterion.